Okay, we'll turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. Philippians 2, 19 through 30. I've titled this message, People You Can Count On When the Going's Rough. Some of you may recognize that phrase as the advertising jingle um, that came on during Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom in decades past. That was a documentary program about, um, you know, uh, wildlife, I suppose, you know, African lions attacking zebras and, you know, that kind of stuff. And so uh, Mutual of Omaha sponsored the show and it had that little song that said, Mutual of Omaha is people you can count on when the going's rough. Well, I've never tested them on that complaint. I have uh, that claim. I have no idea whether you can actually count on them when the going's rough or when the going is even easy. I have no idea. But I do know that everybody needs people that they can count on. Everybody needs people that they can count on. And hopefully everybody knows who those people are they can count on most, and especially when the going's rough. And since we are living in a season of time where Maybe the going's a little rougher than usual, maybe not as, as rough as we imagine it might be uh, right now in October, but uh, rougher than the, the typical year, and maybe there's more roughness ahead of us. Given that fact, um, as followers of Jesus, um, each of us ought to be able to find in the community of faith people that we can count on, and we ought to strive to be that kind of person for others in our faith family. And so let's look at what Philippians 2 has to offer us and, uh, and, and exhort us on to from Philippians 2, 19 through 30. I'll invite you, if you're able and willing, to stand in honor of the reading of God's word and attentiveness to his voice. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Listen to the word of the Lord. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we thank you as always for your word. It is a gift and a treasure, and it is uh, truth and life to us. It is so because you make it so. We know it is completely within the heart of sinful and fallen man. Uh, the, the unbelieving 
one who is still dead, dead in trespasses. It's possible for this to be a dead letter to us, just words on a page. But you cause it to be truth and life to your people and you illuminate that truth and empower that life by your spirit. And we ask, Lord, that you would do that today as you know what we need to hear, how we need to be encouraged, how we need to be challenged, how we need to be ministered to. And so we ask that you would do that to everyone and for everyone listening. So speak your word, O Lord, by your spirit, through your servant, to your people and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you'll recall, you know, as we're going through this series on Philippians, you'll recall that um, the going had always been rough, so to speak, for Christians in Philippi. When, when Paul first went there and preached, he and Silas were put in prison. Um, he had a, a pretty contentious departure from Philippi as well. And so he sort of left in his wake a little bit of an adversarial type situation for the, this new fledgling church um, to even live in in Philippi. And so it remained a difficult place to be a Christian, as it was really lots of places in the world at that time. And uh, that may have contributed, that, that sort of hardship that they lived with, the pressure they sort of lived under all, time, all the time, may have contributed to some of the challenges that they face within the church, and most notably, just a, a challenge with unity, a challenge remaining unified. And so he's spoken to that in a variety of ways, urging them toward unity um, as a community to glorify God. Uh, we talked about that last week, just to glorify God in a crooked and twisted generation. You may remember that phrase. And so here we actually see, as he's been talking about that sort of in principle, he offers two individuals as models of that kind of living and, and models of people that you can really count on when the going's rough. And we see two uh, characteristics sort of embodied in each one of those individuals, um, two characteristics of, of people you can count on, and they are um, that they are selfless, that people you can count on are selfless, and they're sacrificial. And so we just want to look briefly at that this morning. First, um, just the characteristic of selflessness that we see in Timothy in verses 19 through 24. He says, uh, in verse 20 there about Timothy. Of course, he says in 19, I hope to send him to you soon. You remember when he was writing 2 Timothy, he said, uh, as his sort of on the eve of his death, he says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. So, and this, uh, sometime prior to that, he's wanting to send Timothy to Philippi. But he says in verse 20, for I have no one like him. I have no one like him. The Greek literally says, I have no one like-minded. Uh, I think that's how the New King James translates it. The New American Standard says, um, I think of kindred spirit or something like that. But that, that's literally the phrase it uses. And it's unclear whether Paul intends to say that Timothy is like-minded to Paul, 
So I have no one who is of like mind with me, in other words, or if I have no one else who's like minded with Timothy, it's it's that's not clear just in, in what the Greek text actually says. It's obviously translated here. I have no one like him. But either way, what's clear, the point is clear that Timothy is exceptional among all the people that Paul knew and served with. And he had plenty of them, right? I mean, there were lots of other people who had been partners with him in ministry and even still were at this time. He, he mentions even Epaphroditus in the, in the verses that follow. But Timothy is exceptional among all the people that he can send. If he was taking the, you know, servanthood achievement test, he, Timothy would score in the 99th percentile, right? Because you can't score any higher than the 99th percentile. He's, he's the cream of the crop, off the charts, kind of uh, as, as a servant. And I remember as a younger man than I now am uh, in, in seminary, I remember reading this and just being gripped by this phrase. I had read it before, but somehow as a young man starting onto the road, of full-time ministry, that phrase just, just laid hold of me. That he would say, that Paul would say of Timothy, I have no one like him. And I, and I ask myself the question I'd ask you as well, can anybody say that of you? Is there, is there anybody who would, who would know you to be that kind of friend, brother in the Lord, co-laborer, or whatever the case may be, that kind of companion. I have no one like him. That's a provocative question in and of itself, but we'll move on because what is it that makes him so exceptional? Well, it, it says right there in the second part of verse 20 that he will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now think about this. We, we, we went through First and Second Timothy, of course. We know a little bit about who Timothy is and his profile. But I, but I always like to come back to this. When Paul says, I have no one like him, he does not have in mind the big, powerful, charismatic leader that we might drool over in our culture. He doesn't have in mind... I, I, I have nobody like him because Timothy will come in here and he'll command respect. He'll knock some heads together and he'll get your crowd sorted out. You can count on it. That, that's not him at all. He's a young guy, uh, somewhat timid, it seems, because he had to be encouraged or reminded. God did not give him a spirit of fear or timidity. Uh, he's a little on the frail and ill side. Uh, and, and, all, and all those kinds of things. He's just not the picture of a big, strong, powerful leader. And yet Paul says of him, I have nobody like him. Of all the people I could send you, Timothy is, is pick number one. Why? Because he will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. It's, it says, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Once again, this is a, a phrase that it's not really clear who he's talking about, that they all. Uh, surely he can't mean that there are no other partners of his in ministry who uh, will look out for the interest 
of other people that are genuinely concerned about others. In fact, he, he's going to go on and speak immediately in glowing terms about Epaphroditus. Surely he doesn't mean uh, that, but what, what we can take from that for sure um, is that most people prioritize their own interests. When he says they all seek their own interests, the majority of people prioritize their own interests. What that means for you and me is that we, we're not all the Timothys. <laughs> we're not all Timothys. Uh, that we are like the majority of people who probably put our own interests um, as the highest priority much of the time. I think you probably know that that's true and, and how, ch how challenged you might be, how, how, ch how much you might have to wrestle against um, the demands of your own interests at time. But we feel, feel like we can do what, uh, what, what chapter two, verse four says. Okay, so like, it's not like we don't care at all about the interests of others, but you remember um, chapter two, verse four said, let each of you not, uh, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we, so we say, okay, I can do that. I'm gonna look out for my own interests. And when I'm finished, I'll look out for yours. I, we, I can be concerned about you too, but I'm a little bit more concerned about me and I'm concerned about me first. We have a harder time with what verse three says. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Well, Timothy does that and, and even kind of raises it to another level. He's concerned, genuinely concerned about their welfare and everybody else, people tend to seek their own interests, not the interests of Jesus Christ. Timothy, though, is seeking the interests of Jesus Christ by seeking the interests of others. He's exceptional in his genuine concern for the interests of other people. And, and then the other thing it says about him, uh, Paul says, you know his proven worth in verse 22, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. He's referred to him this way. And, and again, you know from the letters he wrote to Timothy, the, the, the affection that they clearly had for one another. Um, where once again, at, at, on the eve of his death, he wanted Timothy with him. So uh, he, he is like a son with a father. And so for, for somebody who has a lot of adversaries, as Paul did, the loyalty of family is particular prize. And so I'm making a general statement that, that, that for somebody who has a lot of adversaries and the, the loyalty of a family is particularly prized because you know there are a lot of people who are disloyal, who are adversaries, who are enemies. And, and of course, it's not true of all father-son relationships. Right? It's not true of all father-son relationships that the son would have that kind of uh, loyalty and regard for a father or vice versa. But most of us understand what he's talking about here and we know it when we see it. And so I would say we, we see this in um, political leaders and just powerful people a lot of times. Uh, it's, it's so it's, it's true of um, President Trump, for example. And so whether, whether you think this is a praiseworthy um, uh, fact or uh, worthy of criticism for that fact, I think most people recognize and would acknowledge he looks to his children 
to represent his interests like no one else will represent them. We saw this, of course, in uh, the younger George W. Bush and, uh, and, and his fidelity to his own father. We see it in North Korea, <laughs> where, where you have powerful people. They, they, they tend to have plenty of adversaries along the way and lots of people who would like to trip them up. And so they look to family who will represent them like they would represent themselves if they could be there. Um, so Paul, especially since he was uh, in prison, uh, needed people of that ilk, you know, pe- people who would uh, be him in the presence of other people. So, you, you know, we've heard the expression, if you want a job done right, do it yourself. We might add to that, if you can't do it yourself, send a faithful family member. <laughs> That's kind of the idea. If you, if you can't be there to do it yourself, uh, if you have that loyal family member who will go and, and be you in that place, send them. Paul, again, especially since he was in prison, had essentially adopted this position. Um, if you want a job done right, send Timothy. Uh, Timothy will represent Paul's uh, values, message, priorities, and the, and the values and message and priorities of Jesus Christ, imitating Paul as he imitates Christ. Um, Timothy is exceptional in that way and a model of, of somebody that you can count on when the going's rough because he is selfless to the utmost degree. The second character quality we see of those people who you can really count on is that they're sacrificial. We see this, uh, again, embodied in Epaphroditus, in verses 25 through 30. Epaphroditus is mentioned twice in this letter here and then um, in in chapter 4 toward the conclusion of the letter. Uh, And so we know that he was the person who was put in charge of delivering the financial contribution that the Philippian church had made to Paul's needs. They had taken a collection to, uh, to provide for some of his needs and they set it to be delivered by the hands of Epaphroditus. There was almost certainly more than just Epaphroditus by himself, but he was in charge of that uh, detail. But, but here's the other thing I, I would mention. It's, it, it mentions him twice here in this letter, but if it didn't, if it weren't for the letter to the Philippians, we wouldn't even know who Epaphroditus was. He's not mentioned anywhere else. He didn't do anything that sort of deserved to be recorded uh, in any other books of the Bible or that impacted any church outside of Philippi. And I love this fact. I love this fact because it's, it's a reminder that the church is built upon lots and lots and lots of ordinary people, just ordinary people, some of whom have a really extraordinary commitment to Christ, but just ordinary people who otherwise are anonymous outside of their own fellowship. And that doesn't mean that their impact is little or insignificant. Clearly, Epaphroditus's wasn't, but my my point is he did great things, important work for the Lord, and otherwise would have gone on uh, un, unknown and unnoticed. 
I love that fact because you and I live that sort of life as believers, as ordinary people, hopefully with extraordinary commitment to Christ, but who serve most of the time in most ways, just anonymously, certainly anonymous outside of our fellowship. That, that's a little bit of a, of a footnote here. But Paul and the entire Philippian church learned through this particular series of events. They learned that Epaphroditus was a man they could count on because he was willing to sacrifice his own welfare for the good of others. He was sacrificial in that way. He was willing to sacrifice his own welfare for the good of others. Paul refers to him as brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier because of his faithfulness carrying out this assignment. I, I suspect Paul is, is a bit intentional in in using these words, because what, what is it that Epaphroditus has done? He's, he's delivered a gift and, a mess, and some messages, a message or messages. It's a, it's a delivery mission, uh, highly important, but not glamorous and glorious, right? He wasn't a preacher who spoke to crowds and, and, uh, and became famous or infamous in any parts of the world. He, he was faithful to this rather mundane mission. Like you can imagine him filling out the little, you know, gifts inventory thing for how might you serve in the church? What can you do? Well, I, I walk really far, you know, whatever. And I'm obviously saying that tongue in cheek and, and, um, and making light of it. But, but the point is to say, it's a very ordinary kind of work of service. But Paul says, because of his faithfulness to that, um, he's a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, and a brother, and, and your uh, messenger and minister to my need. He did this, Epaphroditus, um, even though he got sick to the point of death, you noticed it said, he was ill, near to death, he says in verse 27, but God had mercy on him and, and healed him. But he not only was sick and almost died, verse 30 suggests, or really says explicitly, that he increased his risk of death in some way in order to complete the job. You see what it says there? He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to, to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So it's not simply that he was delivering the goods here and then got sick along the way and almost died. Probably what happened, uh, what seems reasonable anyway to infer from what's written there, is that he got sick along the way and yet he pressed on and made himself even worse off because he continued to finish the job even though he was sick. He risked even more dying from whatever condition that he had uh, to, to complete what was lacking in their service. That phrase, by the way, doesn't mean that the, the, the church in Philippi had been slack in some way. Like he was saying, you know, you, you guys are just kind of half-hearted about this and, and uh, you know, Epaphroditus had to pick up the slack for you. Uh, it's either based on the, the language of that phrase, either just simply means that, that they were absent, that in other words, that the whole church couldn't be present with Paul in order to uh, 
make their contributions in, individually so that he did what you couldn't be there to do, in other words, or that uh, in some way their very generous contribution, because it is spoken of that way, their very generous contribution was still just insufficient to meet the needs that Paul had, and Epaphroditus personally went to extra lengths in some way to try to fill that gap. Again, we don't know precisely which is the case there, um, but either way, he risked his life to ensure that Paul's needs were sufficiently met. And yet, he's concerned that the, uh, that the church back home is distressed because they've heard of his illness. Don't you love that? Like he's, he's feeling bad about getting sick to the point of death because other people are going to be worried about him. I can almost imagine, you know, that he uh, would have said to Paul, hey, when you, when you write them, will you tell them I'm okay? Because I, I know they're worried. I uh, don't have any idea, um, obviously, uh, if that happened. But he seems to be that kind of guy. He's concerned about them because of their distress when he's the one about to die to be sure Paul's needs are met. He's, he's sacrificial to a, to a humbling degree. When you think about what, what kinds of contributions are we uh, called or asked to make, whether it be financial or of our time, um, of, of, of our talents, just anything else. What contributions are we asked to make? And um, how often do we really stop short of it feeling sacrificial? They were able to do, do it, but because we have a, a, a surplus of uh, resources or, or, again, whatever that might be that we're being asked or called upon to do. Uh, but it's, it's, it's humbling when you think about um, Epaphroditus saw the importance of getting this gift to Paul so that his needs are met, so his work can, can continue, that he was willing to risk his life to ensure that that, that happened. Selfless and sacri sacrificial, the profile of somebody you can really count on. That when, when the going's rough, for you personally, for the body, when there's a real need and you have real interests, if you will, uh, set out before you and set out before others, you know they will be concerned about those. And you know they'll sacrifice to ensure that they're intended, uh, attended to. Well, as we kind of conclude here, what I really should have said and intended to say, even at the outset of the message is, as we read through and hear about the profile of, of uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus, we really ought to be asking, to what extent do I uh, see myself in them? To what extent are these characteristics of somebody you can count on? To what extent are those things true of me or not? That's really the question on the back end. Um, so what are some of the self-interests that we prioritize in the church or that people in the church prioritize? What, what are some of those things that, that stand in the way of our being genuinely concerned for others because consciously or unconsciously, we're concerned about our own interests? They might be uh, ministries that meet our needs. So men's ministry, women's ministry, youth, children, whatever it is, but just ministries that, 
that provides something for us that we think we need or want. Um, worship services, the way we like them. I, I'm, you know, of course, I'm making that up and speaking hypothetically, but some places, in some churches, people have preferences for what worship services are like, what the music's like, or what the preaching's like, or what the, the sort of setting or climate is like, and that kind of thing. And those, those might become interests that we prioritize and, and shape expectations that we have in our church. We might, we might also prioritize um, our interests by, by wanting to use our time and money and, again, talent or whatever for, for personal pleasure uh, and personal satisfaction or whatever, rather than sacrificing any of those things in service to the church and its mission. For church leaders, pastors, and so on, uh, it may be that our interests are big crowds, big buildings, good reputation, right? Uh, things of that sort, accolades and achievements, praise and affirmation from other people. See, all of those things can become self-interests that we make a high priority. And, and, and by doing that, we cannot uh, make the interests of others our top priority. They, they can't both live uh, at, the, at the top of our list. So what is it, maybe unconsciously, that you expect for the church to do for you? Or another way of asking that, how is it that you expect the, the church to satisfy you? If you flip those questions around and ask them the other way, um, how does the church disappoint you? This may be the more revealing question. In what ways do you feel let down by the church or, again, church leaders or whatever the case may be? Um, in, in, what, in what sort of ways do you just feel uh, unsatisfied or dissatisfied? See, that reveals something about what you expected or desired in the first place. Do you, you understand where I'm coming from? So, um, and if you, if you understand what your expectations and desires are, uh, it gives you some insight into your priority and your self-interest. Because here's the thing, we can't let go of our self-interest if we don't know we're clinging to it. And we do that sometimes, we've done it for so long, we don't even know we're holding on to it. We don't even think of them as being self-interest. They're just unconscious expectations because that's what we think uh, church is supposed to be and do for us. But if we identify and let go of our self-interest, that's the first step to becoming selfless and sacrificial people that I know we all want to be and want to be uh, individuals that others in the body can count on when the going's rough for them. And I will say, I, I am so thankful um, that what's true of so many in this church is that they can be counted on. I was talking to somebody even just this week, uh, just sort of being in a season of need themselves and, and finding so many people uh, reaching out to them and helping them in, in the ways that they need. This, this church is so responsive to the needs um, of 
of the, of the body, of the people around them, and particularly people that they know and have relationship with. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that fact. It's certainly not perfectly true of you or of me, but thankful every time that we see it in action. And we're challenged and exhorted to even a higher degree of that, that we would, that we would be, for Jesus and for his people, uh, ones that you can count on when the going's rough. Well, would you pray with me? Um, about that. Lord, thank you for this great example. There's so much more that we could say um, about Timothy and about Epaphroditus, but we thank you for the record of who those men were to Paul and to the church and churches that they served. Lord, we, we would just ask that you would make us more more selfless and more sacrificial, and would you do that even now by showing us, revealing a little little bit more about those things in our heart that maybe we have a tighter grip on than we even realize. Um, ways in which we are expecting to be served by others, ways in which we're expecting to be served by the church and satisfied by the church so that those become interests that we prioritize and protect uh, rather than letting go of those and laying those down and being genuinely concerned, wholeheartedly concerned, and unobstructed in our concern for the interests and the welfare of other people. So Lord, would you just show uh, what it is we need to let go of, what we need to loosen our grip on, and move us more and more in the direction of being selfless and sacrificial in our love and service of others. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.